If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another Bradbury 100. At the time of recording, it's May 2023 which means it's now 40 years since the film version of Something Wicked This Way Comes was released. Previously on Bradbury 100, we heard about how Ray Bradbury conceived Something Wicked This Way Comes as a short story, The Black Ferris, in 1948, then developed it through a screenplay for Gene Kelly, then turning it into the novel that we know and love in 1962, and then a couple more screenplays, one which was a very literal retranslation of the book back into film form, and then another one which was a kind of a condensed version. And then we got to 1982, when Disney had finally filmed the script, but by this time it was a Bradbury script that had other people's fingerprints on it because it had been rewritten behind his back. And the film had been previewed in 1982 disastrously, and Hollywood hates a bad preview. So Disney withdrew the film from its release schedule and went into panic mode and tried to figure out what to do. Now it's at this point that Ray Bradbury saw the opportunity to wrest control over the script. He had previously grudgingly approved the script that had been written, rewritten by John Mortimer, and had very pointedly picked out some aspects of the script which he considered were very poor. Now with the film receiving a bad preview, here was Ray's opportunity to turn it around, to turn it back into something that much more resembled his original conception. It's a story that has been told several times, but what's never really been explored is Ray Bradbury's true role in this remaking of Something Wicked after the initial preview. Sam Weller, in his book The Bradbury Chronicles, makes some attempt at this, but Sam very much depends upon what Ray told him in interviews. And with the best will in the world, Ray was talking 20 years after the fact. His memory was not necessarily fresh, his memory was not necessarily accurate. And it's certainly the case that between 1983, when the film was released, and, say, 2003, Ray had become much more outspoken about what he considered to be the inadequacies of the film and the process of making it. Plus, he had begun claiming 
that he took over as director of the film. That's not something he ever claimed back in the 80s or the 90s. It was something that became part of his developed narrative in the 2000s. What I prefer to do, rather than take anybody's testimony at face value, is to try and go back to documentary records of the time. And fortunately, such documents do exist. There isn't a 100% accurate or complete textual record of the remaking of Something Wicked, or at least not that I can get my hands on, but there are many documents that survive from the time. Letters, memos, film production documents, and so on. So what I'm going to talk about today is the remaking of Something Wicked, what went on in this post-production phase to turn the film around, and more importantly, what was Ray's role in that process. Apart from Ray's own account, there is clear evidence that Ray's opinion was sought by Disney. But I find that Ray's voice was just one of many contributing to the reshaping of the film. So when Ray says, I went in there, I directed the remake, I saved the film, at best he is speaking a partial truth, and at worst he is way off beam. And in fact, far from being the director of the film, Ray was frequently ignored during the entire remaking process. And except in the very final phase, when Ray and Jack Clayton worked together to threaten to withdraw their names from the film, except in that final phase, Bradbury and Clayton were just cogs in the Disney machine. When I wrote my PhD thesis, which was completed in 2017, I pieced together the first reconstruction of the film's reworking to have ever been made from archive records rather than from interview testimony. And what I was able to piece together demonstrates the extent to which the screenplay for a film is just one ingredient in the mix. It's subsumed into the overall filmmaking process. And far from the screenplay functioning as a blueprint for a film, which is something we often talk about, the script, Ray's script, or John Mortimer's script, became just one element, and not even a privileged element, in the shaping of the film as it turned out to be. And in my thesis I wrote about the screenplay becoming lost or abandoned as the film's narrative became renegotiated through memos and discussions and argument between various authorities competing to exert control over the film. Ray was trying to have some control, so was Jack Clayton as the director, but so was the vice president of Disney, Tom Wilhite, and so was the president of Disney, Ron Miller. Now, according to Ray, Disney called upon him to lead the reworking of the film personally. And as I said, he would later in life, he would claim that he had edited the final sequence of the film himself and that he directed the reshoots. Now, these claims do gain some limited support from actors such as Sean Carson, who played Jim Nightshade, and the film editor, Barry Gordon. Gordon confirms that Clayton was effectively sidelined by the studio politics, while Ray did have more direct input into the re-editing of the film. And Ray's claim is given some additional credence by documentation from the time, particularly in the 
editorial reconstruction of the final sequence, and that entailed shooting new footage. But let's go through the sequence of events. The preview takes place, the preview audience fill in their little cards and find the film to be average at best. Ray solicits opinions from two of his friends who had seen the film. He talks to a short story writer, Bruce Francis, and an actor-writer, Paul Clements. Both of them provide Ray with critiques, and both of their critiques expose some of the weaknesses in that first version of the film that Ray himself had not noted. Now, I didn't say he hadn't noticed. He might have noticed some things, but he hadn't noted them. He hadn't put them in writing. He hadn't expressed them to anyone. Francis, and all of this, by the way, is taken from documents which are held on file at the Ray Bradbury Centre in Indianapolis, which is where all of Ray's working papers are now held. So Bruce Francis identified the entire end sequence of the film as being confusing and unbelievable, and he specifically pinpointed the dancing of Halloway and Will. Now, this is something that appears really in the novel, at the end of the novel. They have a little song and dance to drive away the evil of the carnival, and that is shown in the preview version of the film. Francis said that that wasn't believable as shot, and he felt that that scene would have made the audience feel embarrassed watching the scene. Now, there was a period between July of 1982 and November of 1982 where Ray's opinions on the first edit of Something Wicked This Way Comes began to solidify. As he took on board opinions from other people, trusted friends, and as he reconsidered the film in his own mind, he gradually moved from a position of thinking that maybe a few minor flaws could be fixed in the film and that it would then be acceptable to an audience to thinking that there were some fundamental things that needed work. And he came up with six firm suggestions. And I'll go through these six as best I can. The first one concerns the trellis. Now, there's this scene in the film where Will challenges his father to climb the trellis up into Will's room. And he says, you ain't got the stuff. And that prompts Halloway to try to prove himself by climbing up the trellis. Halloway turns out to fail in this challenge and Will reaches out to save him. Now, Ray Bradbury and Jack Clayton, the director, both believed that this scene was critical to the relationship of the child and the father. And part of the reason for that belief is that Will's verbal challenge, you ain't got the stuff, is picked up in one of the climactic scenes of the film, where Halloway turns his back on Will. So Halloway has this sense of failure, and that gives focus to what would otherwise be a very vague melancholy that he's suffering from. So Bradbury developed ideas for how Halloway's failure could be rectified by mirroring Will's actions. And what this means is that at some point in the film, Halloway should rescue Will from the mirror maze, and that would be a kind of reflection or inversion of Will rescuing him when he tries to climb the trellis. But as Something Wicked was edited 
from the original preview version of the film, working towards the final release version, that scene was repeatedly removed or added back in or cut down or removed again. And it became a real focus of disagreement between Bradbury and Jack Clayton, who shared his view, and Wilhite, who was really leading the effort for Disney. Now, the final release version of the film, the version that you will have seen, does have a version of that scene, the trellis scene. But from looking through the production documents, I can tell you that the version of the scene that you see there is not Bradbury's preferred version. It's actually a truncated version, and it is Wilhite's preferred version. The verbal challenge isn't there. Halloway's failure to climb the trellis isn't there. Will's rescue of Halloway is removed. So although we see a small part of the trellis scene, the concept of that scene is dissolved. And that means that the climactic scenes of the film can no longer reflect back on that earlier character moment. When people watch Something Wicked This Way Comes, they tend to say nowadays that maybe the first two thirds of the film are OK, but once we get to the final act, it all becomes a bit random and it's not clear what's going on or what anything means. Part of the reason for that is that the, the kind of connective tissue that connects the climactic events back to earlier events has been taken away. So the trellis was the first of Ray's suggested improvements to the film. The second area that Ray suggested more work on related to the balloon, the dust witch's balloon. Now, Jack Clayton had deliberately removed the balloon flight from the screenplay. So this was going back way before the sh shooting of the film, right back to the point where the script was being prepared for filming. And what Clayton had done is he'd taken out the balloon flight because he didn't think it would be at all believable by an audience. And he'd put in something as a kind of a compromise. He'd put in a scene involving a, a sort of a mechanical hand that would tap at the window. They shot the scene with this mechanical hand, but it proved unusable after shooting. I, I'm not sure quite what was wrong with it, but they essentially decided not to use that scene in the film. So that was taken out. The preview version of the film didn't include the balloon, nor the substitute scene. For Ray, that left a gap in the narrative. So Ray's sense was that something needed to go in there to fill the gap. And his solution in several memos that he sent was to revert as far as possible to the original script the one that he'd written back in 1976. And his most refined suggestion, which, by the way, I find plausible, visual, frightening, and suitably indicative of the dust witch's precision in marking out the house, is the insertion of new footage in between the existing shots of the boys. He suggested swirling leaves at the window, leaving a mysterious handprint on the glass. The boys look out to the sky and we see the distant balloon travelling away and the handprint on the window is a lasting sign that the dust witch has been there. It's a, a substitute for the failed mechanical hand and it's a scaled down equivalent of the 
kind of snail track that the Dust Witch uses to mark the house in the novel and in Ray's 1976 screenplay. So this would have required some minimal refilming, but these suggestions were just ignored. And instead, as you will know if you've seen the finished film, they shot a spider attack. And I believe that was Jack Clayton's suggestion. Now that scene is quite a memorable scene. It's one of those that you will recall years later after you've seen the film. And if you're scared of spiders, it will send you to bed with nightmares that evening. But um, it's kind of an arbitrary set of events. It doesn't have anything to do with what was in that part of the story originally. So that was Ray's second area of suggestion, is to do something about the Dust Witch's balloon. The third thing that Ray believed needed work was the storm. Now, in the film, in the preview version and in the finished version of the film, the storm arrives in the small town and it eventually kind of draws the carnival up into the sky. So it's an important element in the story, which has symbolic value as well as a kind of a practical function in the plot. And what Ray wanted to do after the disastrous preview was to do more to suggest the autumnal atmosphere in the film. So he wanted there to be more use of leaves on the ground and clouds in the sky and changing weather. And some of these suggestions were adopted in the reshooting and the re-editing of the film. So they sent a crew to Vermont, for example, in the autumn, and they sent stand-ins rather than the real actors. But the scenes you see in the film with uh, Mr Halloway and the two boys running across a field and we see these golden-leaved trees and all of that, those were add-ons that were put in during this remaking phase of the film. They also augmented the introductory shots of Tom Fury with the use of a matte painting that put in some golden-leaved trees. So looking for opportunities within the film to emphasise the time of year, which wasn't otherwise very apparent. So there's one area of suggestion where Ray was listened to. The fourth area where Ray had some very strong suggestions were around the mirror maze. And in the very first memo he wrote after the preview of the film, Ray was arguing for alterations to the montage to restore some logic to the mirror maze sequence. He felt that the lightning strike was something of a deus ex machina, and he felt that Mr Halloway didn't have very much agency. And Ray said that Halloway has to be the first one to destroy the mirror, to crack the glass. In the preview version of the film, it's the lightning rod salesman who is galvanised into rushing to destroy the mirrors. And Ray said, that's not the lightning rod salesman's job. Surely that's Mr Halloway's job. So Ray was coming up with suggestions here that were both creative and pragmatic. The, the film had already been shot and he could have suggested that they do something that completely abandoned that version of the script and go back to his earlier version of the script. But instead, he's willing to look at the scene as shot 
and try to figure out a way to make that work rather than to have to come up with some completely new scene. So this shows that Ray is thinking like a script editor or a script doctor, trying to improve what's already there rather than just saying, no, you should have done this in the first place. And in that same scene, the mirror maze sequence, Clayton had shot uh, a sequence using a series of extras who represented Jason Robards' reflections as Robards is supposed to be getting older. And Ray said, well, that just doesn't work. If you want to show Robards getting older, show Robards getting older rather than dissolving across to a different face that happens to be an older face. Now, here's a suggestion that they did take on board. And so in the finished version of the film, you do see Jason Robards' face ageing before your very eyes. So that was done as a post-production effect. The next area where Ray suggested some improvements were around the song and dance scene. In his very first memo after the preview, he doesn't mention the singing and dancing. That tends to suggest that he didn't see any serious problems with it. But five weeks later, for the first time, he acknowledges that the, the dancing scene was still not right. But he confessed that he didn't know the solution. He said it needed to be recut, but he didn't know how to do it. He didn't know how you could recut it to stop it looking silly. Now, from the fact that Ray didn't notice anything wrong with that scene in his first reaction memo makes me think that he actually thought that scene was fine. But two of his trusted friends, and presumably other people as well, had said that that scene just wasn't at all convincing and something needed to be done about it. So it took Ray about five weeks to really come on board with that idea, but he didn't really know what could be done to fix it. Now, incidentally, what Ray said about this contrasts with what Ray would say 20 years later. 20 years later, Ray would say, I edited the film in the end. But these production documents from 1982 have him saying things like, I'm not an editor and don't pretend to be one. This scene needs to be recut, but I don't know how to do it. As time went on, Ray was more or less reduced to saying of this scene that there has to be some way of rescuing it in the edit. There just has to be, because we have to keep the singing and the dancing. To Ray, it was all part of the problem solving in the novel, and he wanted that to transfer into the film. But the filmmakers were convinced that that scene was awkward and embarrassing and not convincing, and it had to go. And it did go. If you look at the film, you won't see anything of that song and dance scene, except for a tiny bit of dancing from Mr. Halloway, and it's very minimal. And the result of the cutting down of that scene is a couple of shots which suggest Halloway has a unique insight into how to defeat the carnival, but he just sounds angry. So the original intent is lost. Now, I'm not arguing for the reinstatement of that song and dance scene because it's not a great scene. I've seen the first preview cut of the film and it's true. The dancing scene doesn't really work. It's difficult to see how it could be rescued. And the final area where Ray made suggestions for improvement were 
on the question of voiceover, narration. As a screenwriter, Ray had always tried to avoid voiceover narration. And he did have an interesting reason for believing that voiceover narration was not a good idea in principle. He said that all films occur in the present tense. We see events unfolding in front of us as if they are happening now. But narration is nearly always in the past tense. It's nearly always somebody's recollection. And he felt that that spoiled the fun in some way. That it suggested there was somebody, one of the characters in the film perhaps, who already knew the outcome, but the viewer didn't. Now, I think we could apply that same critique actually to books, and we could say that narrators in books shouldn't exist for that very same reason. So I don't think Ray's logic is necessarily strong, but it was a firmly held belief, and it was one of the things that led him to not include voiceover narration in his scripts. Except in this special case of trying to rescue the film. He saw that it could set the scene, it could fill in information that's missing from the footage. So he proposed some narration, a few paragraphs for the beginning of the film, and in the finished version of the film, what you hear is the actor Arthur Hill doing a very creditable job of introducing the setup and casting the whole action of the film as a recollection of childhood which I think works very nicely. So you'll remember that Something Wicked This Way Comes had more or less finished filming in January of 1982. The preview was held in the middle of 1982, and by the end of 1982, by October in fact, Disney had drawn up a shooting schedule for all of the new material that they were about to shoot. And the plan that they came up with drew indiscriminately from many different sources. It wasn't simply that they went to Ray and Ray said, here's what you have to do, and they implemented it. No, they listened to Ray, but they also listened to Jack Clayton, the director, Lee Dyer, the post-production effects supervisor, and various others. And the ultimate judgment was made not by the director, not by the writer, but by Tom Wilhite, who was the Disney production representative. So despite Ray Bradbury's claims over the years that he rescued the film, he edited the film, he directed the reshoots, the truth is really that some of his ideas were accepted, some were rejected, and his ideas weren't given any particular privilege over the ideas of anyone else. So what did they actually reshoot? Well, they completely reshot the mirror maze sequence. They used Bradbury's idea of ageing Jason Robards and of Robards breaking through the glass of the mirror maze. But as well as using Ray's ideas there, they also used ideas probably from Lee Dyer, the post-production supervisor, for presenting an explanation of the purpose of the mirrors. And they did use some new dialogue in there, and that was polished by Bradbury. And they used ideas from elsewhere, possibly from Clayton, possibly from Tom Wilhite, for restaging the way that Tom Fury gets rid of the Dust Witch. They reshot the destruction of the carnival using miniatures. They used the ideas of Lee Dyer for this. 
So at the end of the film, when you see the carnival being ripped apart by the storm, those were miniatures. All of that was added to the film. It wasn't there in the preview version of the film. The next thing they reshot was some close-ups of Mr Dark's hands, and they used a stand-in for this because Jonathan Price was long gone from the film by now, and they wrote some additional off-screen voice for Mr Dark, and they got Jonathan Price to record just the voice for that. So it's somebody else's hands, Jonathan Price's voice. Then there was the spider sequence, and that came from Clayton's idea, as storyboarded by Lee Dyer. Then they shot some cloud effects in a, in a big tank to create the illusion of the storm. This was inspired in part by Ray's suggestion, but following a, a scheme and a storyboard by Lee Dyer. And then they shot or reshot the scenes of Will swimming and drowning and Halloway pulling him from the water. That sequence didn't come from Ray. I'm not sure where it came from. I haven't found any documentation relating to that. And overall, there was some re-editing as well of what remained of the footage. And then there was the topping and the tailing. So those scenes shot in Vermont, the voiceover narration and so on. As time went on and as these new bits were added into the film and as it was re-edited, Ray was still writing memos and he at one point said, please put the film back as it was six weeks ago because I think you've gone too far now with the re-editing of it. But it's quite evident from the surviving documentation that Tom Wilhite of Disney had more or less stopped communicating his decisions to Ray and to Jack Clayton at this point. And this led to them fearing that time was running out and Ray and Jack, who were not speaking to each other, nevertheless came together to jointly write some memos. And at one point, just one day into the reshoots actually, Ray and Jack found themselves to be so far removed from their involvement in the film that they issued a list of eight requests all of them restating things they'd asked for previously, but ending with an ominous threat. They said basically that if you carry on like this and if you don't communicate your ideas better to us, we will both take our names off the film. Tom Wilhite struck back basically saying that you two are constantly complaining. We've got a film to make here. We've got a plan. We're going to do this. We're Disney. We know what we're doing. But it is very clear that Ray and Jack were sidelined during this stage of the filmmaking. So again, when Ray says, I directed the reshoots, no, he didn't. He was sidelined during the reshoots. Jack Clayton was present on set as a courtesy, but really wasn't directing Lee Dyer was really directing what was going on on set. Ray may have been present as well, but Ray isn't a member of the Directors Guild. There's no way that Ray could have told people what to do on a film set. And then there came the voiceover narration. Ray had suggested some voiceover. Ray had written some voiceover. But suddenly, one day, some voiceover turned up that had been written by somebody else uh, by the name of John Colhane, and it was terrible. 
So Ray and Jack together drafted a memo where they did a side-by-side comparison of Ray's poetic narration from his novel and Colhane's very descriptive and grammatically poor narration, basically saying, look, Ray knows how to do this stuff. Why not take some of his words rather than this clunky stuff that's been written by this other person? And this again led to an ultimatum. Ray put his foot down and said, either the film is released with Bradbury narration or it's released without my name on it. And on this point, Ray won, because his narration is used throughout the film. Finally, Ray and Jack Clayton were not very impressed with the reshoots and the re-edit of the climax. Again, Ray and Jack collaborated on a memo where they laid out a suggested editing continuity for the final sequence. So they were suggesting in quite some detail which shots to keep from the original shoot and which shots from the new material to put in and the sequencing of that and the timing of it. So it's a very detailed set of suggestions, but it wasn't really followed. There, there is some correlation between their suggestions and what's in the finished version of the film, but that may be, well, I was going to say accidental. It may be that there is only one logical way to cut some of those shots together, but uh, Ray and Jack's memo was essentially ignored during that final climactic scene. So despite what you see on the screen, the implied possessive credit that this is a Jack Clayton film, Jack Clayton did not have final cut. And despite what you see on the screen, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, it's not Bradbury's script, and only some of his suggestions were listened to in the remake phase of the film. When the film came out, it had a bit of a mixed critical reception. The positive reviews tended to emphasise how well the film captured the style of Bradbury's novel. So, for example, Roger Ebert said it was a horror movie with elegance of an altogether different kind, and he attributed much of that to Bradbury's screenwriting, little knowing, of course, that the screenplay of the final version of the film was John Mortimer's draft, not Ray Bradbury's draft. Uh, Philip French said that Jack Clayton is Bradbury's perfect collaborator, uh, presenting an unsentimental children's view of the adult world with a readiness to confront evil. And he admired the juxtaposition of the Norman Rockwell town with the dangerously alluring, Europeanized Poe-like world of the carnival. And incidentally, Philip French was one of the few critics to note the essential Englishness of the performance of Jonathan Price playing Mr. Dark. The most substantial contemporary review of the film came, interestingly, from the science fiction writer Alan Dean Foster. And Foster praised the film's power of suggestion. He felt it, in his words, hedges its bets by unnecessarily adopting literal methods, such as in the tarantula sequence, and he said he felt detached from the story when watching it, and he attributed the film's failings to 
its attempts to be faithful to the novel. So even though the film drifts quite far from Ray's book, nevertheless, Alan Dean Foster felt that the flaws of the film came from trying to be too close to the book. And the horror novelist and critic Kim Newman, writing about five years later, said that he found the film a flat and unmagical rendering of promising material. He did identify one strong scene, and that's the library scene, the confrontation scene between Mr Dark and Mr Halloway. And I, too, think that is a very strong scene. The really interesting thing is that that scene, the the confrontation in the library, was present all the way back in the 1950s, when Ray was writing this story at length for the first time for the Gene Kelly script. So that scene, the scene where the boys are hiding down in the drain, that's also from Ray's earliest version uh, of this. So the strongest scenes in the film are the oldest scenes, the ones that Ray worked out a long, long time ago and had had time to refine, develop and perfect them. And the weakest scenes in the film are more or less where the film thinks it knows better. And unfortunately, it doesn't. So, on paper, it looks as if Ray wrote a novel in 1962 and called it Something Wicked This Way Comes. And 20 years later, he wrote the script for a film of the same title, and that's all there is to it. The reality is that he started writing way back in the 1940s with The Black Ferris, He developed it in the 1950s while working on the script for Gene Kelly. He developed it further in the 1960s when turning it into a novel. He developed it further in the 1970s when he wrote two different screenplay versions. And then the film was made, released with his name on it. But I would say only about 50% of the film is truly Ray's. But I think Ray was absolutely right in his summing up of the film. Late in life, he would say, it's not a great film, but it's a nice one. It's what Bradbury fans have always wanted. We've always known that Ray's beautifully vivid descriptions and Ray's strong characters fighting against evil, we've always known that they could work on screen. And Something Wicked This Way Comes, 1983, proves that. Where the film breaks down is that nobody quite knew how to do the ending. The John Mortimer, Jack Clayton ending differs from Ray's ending. It wasn't strong on the page and inevitably, therefore, it wasn't strong on film at the preview. Their attempts to rescue it could only build upon what had already been shot because there wasn't the will to completely reshoot the final act. And so the film kind of loses its way and along comes the storm and we don't quite understand what's going on and the carnival gets drawn up into the sky and there's something about Mr Dark getting on the carousel and now he's ageing and it all becomes a little bit of a mess. But for a good hour or so, this is really good Bradbury stuff. So there we go. I hope this wasn't a too detailed and too tedious going through of all of the problems of Something Wicked This Way Comes. 
but I think it's a fascinating case study of how scripts get turned into films and of how books get turned into scripts. Ray was a fantastic screenwriter and it's a great shame that so little of his work was actually filmed as written. If you look back, you'll find It Came From Outer Space was a fairly good representation of his screen work. Moby Dick was a good representation of his screenwriting for the first two acts, but then it drifts off into something else. And if you really want to see Ray's scripts turned directly into film, you have to look to television, to the Alfred Hitchcock series from the 1950s and Ray Bradbury Theatre in the 80s and 90s. But I still think Something Wicked is probably the most representative piece of Bradbury on screen that we have. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk.